Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing out there in podcast land today? How is podcast land? How's Lepland at the moment? I hope it's comfortable. Uh, here it is humid. The weather is humid. It's sort of overcast and hot and sweaty. And there's electricity in the air. Thunderstorms, lightning, crash, bang, wallop, flash, thunder and lightning, which I always find amazing. I mean, the other night there was a thunderstorm in the middle of the night and I could see the flashes even with my eyes closed. And I didn't I wasn't having a very good night anyway because it was very hot and you know me, I don't like it when it's too hot because it's just unbearable for me. So I wasn't really sleeping and I could sort of see these flashes and I had to get up and look out of the window and I stared out at the window and there way up high in the sky it must have been quite far away as well was this huge dark cloud and within it were these incredible uh, bits of fork lightning spreading across the whole cloud I mean it must have been shooting across the inside of this cloud it must have been miles and miles of distance being covered by the lightning in just uh, a split second and I remember when I lived in London my flat in London had a view quite a big view. I could see quite a lot of the London skyline. And I remember watching lightning streaking across basically the entire city, the entire width or length of the city in a split second. It is fascinating. I've, I find lightning not only entertaining, but mysterious and, and incredible. I mean, I you know, I, I kind of understand it that you get something like positive and negative charges in the air and the cloud acts as an insulation between them, but then sometimes it doesn't and that's when lightning happens. Fantastic. So it's very um, very atmospheric and stormy here at the moment, uh, warm weather and stormy weather. But anyway, that's not what I am here to talk to you about. In this episode, I'm going to let you listen to the recording of my storytelling event, which happened last week at the British Council in Paris. I've been talking about it on the podcast, promoting it. Um, right, uh, saying to Parisian Lepsters that they should come along. Uh, so at the British Council, I mean, you know, because I did uh, this recently. I think it was in February that I did my talk about the Beatles. So every month at the British Council in Paris, we do these talks in English. And usually a guest is invited to come and give a talk, sort of like a TED talk or something. Um, but also the teachers do them as well sometimes. And uh, yeah, so in February, I talked about the Beatles. And then this time I thought I would do it again. And then I would try doing some storytelling and I chose to tell the story of how I got sick while living in Japan. My sick in Japan story. I've told this story on the podcast before. Um, some of you, many of you, I don't know how many of you, 
Some of you uh, will have heard this already. There's interesting grammar. Some of you will have heard this already. Now, we use will have like that, will have heard, to make assumptions about the present. Hmm. So let's see if I can make some assumptions. We make we use that that structure to make assumptions about things that people have already done before. Huh. So that's a little bit difficult to wrap your head around because I'm using will to sort of talk about the past. But here's an example. So I'll say to you, okay, so you're listening to Luke's English podcast, and I'm assuming that you you will have subscribed to the podcasts. Right, that's probably you. Probably you will have um, received some sort of notification. Maybe if you're using a podcasting app, your uh, podcasting app will have sent you some kind of notification to let you know that this podcast has been published. Or if you are an email subscriber, then you will have received one of my emails to let you know that uh, this podcast has been published. Whatever the way it, it was that you discovered it, maybe you're you follow me on Twitter and you saw that I'd posted a new episode there. You know, so you will have done X, Y, and Z. Actually referring to things that you've done, I'm assuming that you've done those things. Okay, a little bit of unexpected grammar there, but I'm sure that one or two of you uh, will have, when I said that, you will have thought, huh? That's an interesting bit of grammar. Check it out. Uh, will have done. Um, there's, you know, there's a few different uses of will have done, like the future perfect. Um, some of them do refer to the future, but also there is this other thing which is like for 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 um, assumptions. Um, I'm getting I'm getting really distracted here by this bit of grammar. You could just Google it. Future perfect as an assumption. That's probably a good. Uh, way to Google it if you want to. So anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. So some of you uh, will have heard this story before. Um, in episode 118, which was called Sick in Japan, um, I told this story. But that was 10 years ago. And I think about 655 episodes ago. And so I think a lot of my current listeners might not have heard that story. Right. So if you're a fairly new listener, you probably won't have heard that story. Um I did put up a, a version of it on YouTube recently, uh, just a sort of edited version of episode 118 with subtitles. So there is a subtitled video version on YouTube. But still, it's been a long time since I first published that episode, and so I hope you will forgive a little bit of repetition on the podcast here. I like telling this story. For some reason, I like revisiting this experience, and I was also curious to see if I could make it work in front of an audience. So there was a room full of people, in uh, the Turner Room at the British Council, which is a large room with a high ceiling, a very echoey room. Um, a room full of people. I don't know how many people were there, 50 or 60 people. It's not really obvious from the recording. Uh, about half of them were Lepsters, which was great. It was really great to have some of my people there. And this isn't exactly stand-up comedy, but I thought that if I could make my story funny in places, then great. So it's more a storytelling show than a stand-up show. My main aim was just to entertain the audience and tell them all about a difficult experience I faced when living abroad in another country. I just wanted to share my experience and somehow let my audience understand what it felt like for me when it happened. That's it, okay? And I will now let you listen to it. I'll talk to you more at the end. And I want to talk a little bit about what happened after the show, too. So stick around for that. 
But for now, I will let you listen to me telling my sick in Japan story live at the British Council. And here we go. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Hello. Hello, 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 everybody. Hello, hello, French people. Bonsoir. I have to say that first, because uh, in my experience, before you can achieve anything in France, you have to say bonsoir. It's like a password, or bonjour, depending on what time of day it is. Hello, yes, hello, French people. Uh, I'm Luke Thompson. Some of you know me. Thompson, okay? I say this because uh, French people, you don't know how to spell my name, uh, I've noticed, uh, because there's a P in the middle. There's just a P hiding in the middle of my name. No one knows why. It's part of a long tradition that we have in English of having unnecessary letters in words just to make life more difficult for you, like the word Q, which is essentially the letter Q followed by four completely unnecessary other letters. But anyway, Thompson with a P. Uh, I have to say that. I have to say to people, it's Thompson with a P. Like the other day I was in the supermarket, I said to the girl, it's Thompson with a P. She wrote, Pomson. <laughs> Yeah, Thompson with a P. <laughs> um, so anyway, hello. Nice to meet you, some of you. Some of you I already know uh, as a teacher, so it's very nice to be here. Tonight I'm going to tell you a story. That's the idea. I'm going to tell you a story. And then there's, there are drinks and things afterwards, so you can hang around and have a chat and stuff like that. So I hope you like my story. I hope you find it entertaining. If you don't, that's fine, because free wine. Okay, there will be free wine. Just remember that at all times. Like, eh. oh yeah, there's free wine. Everything's fine. Maybe that's why some of you came in the first place. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I've got my microphone on. I'm recording myself this evening. I'm recording myself on my podcast. I do a podcast for learners of English. It's called Luke's English Podcast. It's a very imaginative title. Um, uh, and any listeners in? Hey, my people, my podcast people, you're here, fantastic. How many French listeners do I have? French and listeners. Wow, that's brilliant. You are like the ultimate ninjas. Did you know that? Because like you just like, you know, some countries, like obviously I've got lots of audience, but then in France you're often further down the list, but you're representing tonight. Fantastic. Any non-French people in this evening? Oh, great. Okay. Hello, hello, hello. Where are you from, guys? Japan. Okay. All right. Welcome. What brings you to France? What brought, what brought you to France? Why did you come to France? The music. Really? You're like, I love Serge Gainsbourg. I'm going to go and... Uh, classic. classic the classical music, the Debussy and all that sort of thing. Yes, right. Yeah? Vietnam. You came from Vietnam. Really? Wow. You came all the way from Vietnam just for this show. <laughs> Why did you come to France, Vietnam? He made you do it. No, <laughs> um, I voluntarily go here, but, yeah. uh, you know, to meet him again. To meet him again. All right, so he, you met him in Vietnam. He escaped to France, and you followed him. Are you okay with this? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah? Italy, hello. For work. For work. Okay, so you're working. Good, I'm glad somebody is. <laughs> the obligatory joke that has to be made at the beginning of every show. So, yes, yeah, so I'm going to tell you a story. And uh, it's a story about how I got really sick and I thought I was going to die. Right, very dramatic. I thought I was going to die. I didn't die, don't worry. Because uh, here I am, obviously. Unless I'm some sort of ghost or something. In which case, woo. 
but no, I didn't die. I'm fine. The story is fine. It has a happy ending, but it's a story about how I thought I was going to die. I ended up in a Japanese hospital bed, and I didn't know why I was there, and I was terrified out of my life, and I thought they were going to operate on me in the morning. Well, I say I didn't know why I was there. Obviously, I knew I was sick, definitely. But I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, I thought they were going to give me some terrible operation in the morning. And I was terrified out of my mind. It was horrible. And so I'm going to tell you about it. Now, my experience, it's not like unique or particularly worse than other people's experiences. I'm sure that people go through worse experiences all the time. But for me, at the time, it was horrendous. Uh, But I'm glad now that I've got a story out of it that I can tell you this evening. That's That's the good thing about it. So it started, so the story begins, okay, when I just finished university. So I was uh, in Liverpool, that's where I did my degree. I was studying in Liverpool and I just finished my degree but I didn't know what to do with my life. It was actually a terrible, terrible time in a way. I had no idea what to do with my life. So at university I did a media and cultural studies degree. Really interesting, completely useless, right? (laughs) Um, not like other degrees where you do law or engineering or something and afterwards you actually have skills that you can apply in the workplace. I, I could read uh, after mine. I was re- quite good at, well, not even really good at reading. I was quite good at reading. So I didn't know what to do with myself. And uh, I was living in Liverpool, as I said, working in sort of a terrible sales job and uh, playing in a band and uh, the band was going nowhere. I did play at the Cavern Club in Liverpool, the world famous Cavern. I did play there. It's not the original one. The original Cavern got destroyed in the 1970s and replaced by an underground metro line. There's a romantic story for you. But anyway, they rebuilt it next door. So I did play uh, a show at the Cavern in my band on a Tuesday evening. There's more people tonight than there were at that show uh, because (laughs) I was playing the drums and I could both hear and smell the toilets. Uh, during the show, which gives you an idea of how many people were in the room at the time. So that wasn't good. And in the end, I decided I'd move back to my parents. Now, uh, in the UK, when we go to university, we go off to another city, you know, when we're 18 or something, we go and leave home, leave our parents' home, and go in another, live in another city. And so I did that. And typically, we live in student residences or we live in a student house. Obviously, mum and dad are not there anymore. And so what happens is you don't really eat properly or look after yourself very well, and you have lots of parties. And that's exactly what happened to me. And um, so I lived, I think I survived on cornflakes and baked beans for about three and a half years. And beer, of course. Um, And so I wasn't maybe in the best condition. And the main thing is I just didn't know what to do with my life. And moving back to my parents was terrible because they lived in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of England, okay? And so there was a tiny village with one pub in the village. And of course, that's where I went to work. Uh, so I was working in the pub. I just didn't know what, was, what I was doing. I was completely directionless and miserable. All my friends were in different places and I was just on my own in this little village, working in this pub, feeling very sad and uh, depressed and just driving around in my dad's car, listening to the same Foo Fighters tape again and again. It's the only tape I could listen to that would make me feel okay was this Foo Fighters uh, cassette. And 
Um, someone told me, they said to me, Luke, you should, you should uh, travel and you should have experiences. That's what you should do. You're, you're young, you're in your early 20s, go and travel and have experiences. And I was like, okay, I will. And I thought, but wow. And in a moment of desperation, I chose to become an English teacher. Right? Because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the only way that English teachers like me and, you know, we don't, no one's, I will become an English teacher. Or like, what do, you, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm going to be an English teacher, a TEFL teacher. No, it, so you always end up being a TEFL teacher. So, it, so I thought, okay, right, well, I'll be able to travel and it will give me a career. So that's good enough for me. So I trained to be a TEFL teacher. TEFL, that's teaching English as a foreign language. That's what we do. So I trained to be a TEFL teacher. That was a nightmare because uh, I didn't know my own language. As a native English speaker, now we don't study grammar at school in the way that you do here, if you're one of our students. So I had no idea about the grammar of the English language. I didn't know your present perfect or first, second or third conditionals or cleft sentences or anything like that. I was like, what? What is a cleft sentence? I avoided cleft sentences for, for years as a teacher because I didn't know what they were. So I was like, cleft uh, pay, uh, unit nine? No, uh, Dave, you can do unit nine. I'll do unit three, one of the easier units. So you slowly learn to be, be a teacher. So I did the course and it was kind of a steep learning curve. But then I was qualified as an English teacher. And I started looking for work uh, online, right? And, you know, I was looking. My, a friend of mine, another reason why I chose to be a TEFL teacher was that a friend of mine said that his friend uh, was working as a TEFL teacher in Barcelona. And he said to me, he spends a lot of time at the beach. And I thought to myself, this is the career for me. <laughs> this was my ambition, to spend time at the beach. <laughs> so, uh, I was looking online, there were lots of jobs, and I was sort of thinking, I'll go somewhere in Europe, you know, not too far, uh, you know, Italy, Spain, Poland, Germany, something like that. I was thinking, I'll go to Barcelona too, and I'll spend time at the beach. And there were lots of jobs available in Japan as well, loads of jobs available there. Apparently, they need to learn English too. But I thought, nah, it's too far, I'm not ready to go that far, you know. I'd like to be able to just go home if I want to. And then I went for a drink with my friend Neil, who you don't know, I think. Don't think you've ever met him. And I was like, oh, you know, where shall I go? There's lots of jobs in Japan. He's like, mate, just go to Japan. Why not? And then that's all I needed to be convinced. I was like, why not? Uh, okay. And so I thought, why not? Yeah, because if I'm going to go and travel somewhere and have an experience, I might as well travel all the way around the other side of the world and go somewhere completely different. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to Japan. Now, I knew already a few things about Japan because I'd watched like manga films and played Street Fighter 2, the computer game. And I liked Japanese stuff. I thought it was really cool and interesting and, and everything like that. But, you know, the image I had of Japan, the expectation I had was that it was very high tech society. Just robots, basically, just walking around everywhere. Just, that's what I imagined. So anyway, I, I was like really up for it. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Japan. This is going to be great. And I was learning Japanese and stuff like that, uh, working in the pub, saving up all my money. I, uh, as a waiter, I was earning tips. I kept all my tips in these jars, and I, had, you know, I was saving up, saving up all my money. And the, the day came. 
for me to actually go. Now, I got a job with a company. There were lots of jobs available, and the one that, ended, that I ended up getting was with a, a big company, a well-known company in Japan, which is called Nova. Do you know about Nova? Nova. Yeah. Yeah, the English school, of course, the famous English school. Now, it's kind of famous or maybe infamous, infamous. It's sort of like the McDonald's School of English, basically. Like in, in, you know, the way that there are certain companies, you always see them, you know, they're there next to the station. You've got Starbucks, McDonald's and all the others. And Nova in Japan is one of these companies. And it, it really is like the McDonald's School of English. And it was like that working there as well. It felt a bit like a fast food restaurant, but for English. Anyway, the thing, one of the things that was attractive about working for Nova was that they would sort out everything. They sorted out your accommodation, they sorted out your health insurance, they sorted out your, um, your flight tickets and your visa and everything. They just took care of everything. It was brilliant. So that was great. And I was like, I'm going to go to Japan. This is going to be great. And the day came for me to leave and my mum was like crying at the door. She didn't know when she was going to see me again. I was like, it's fine, mum. I'm going to go to Japan. It's going to be great. My dad drove me to Heathrow Airport and, you know, I was like really, really looking forward to it. And then the moment that my dad basically turned around and said goodbye to me. So he basically said, well, goodbye, son. Uh, take care. Uh, to keep yourself clean, he said. <laughs> what do you mean, Dad? Do you mean to keep yourself clean? This is his great advice. Keep yourself clean, he said. Okay. Uh, and then he left. And then suddenly, suddenly, the ground went underneath me, and my throat went like that. And I realized, oh my God, this is real. I'm really going to do this. I'm going to fly off to some other country when I don't speak the language. I don't know anyone. It's totally different. There are robots walking around everywhere. And I don't know what I'm doing. What am I doing? Oh God. And I got airport anxiety. I don't know if you've ever had airport anxiety. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of thing where you've got like, okay, I've got my boarding pass. I've got my passport. Don't lose the boarding pass. All the, keep, just keep them, you know, and you Scared you're going to lose your stuff and like, I've got to get to the gate. I've got to get to the gate on time. And I checked in my bag and I had all those coins that I collected as a waiter. I had all those, I had them in bags, right? Plastic bags of coins. And I was like, I will take these to the airport and spend them on duty free. I'll buy something nice for myself. So I had all these bags and I was, they're in my, ba- in my backpack in the front pocket. Back here, right? And for some reason, because of the airport anxiety, I just... I just couldn't do it. Sometimes when you get that level of anxiety, just like little fiddly things become impossible. That's sort of where I was in my brain. Like, ah, oh, no, I can't. I can't. Uh, where's my passport? I can't go in the back. No, I just basically I just was locked like this. Like, oh, God, what, what am I doing? Got on the plane, had, the, had a terrible flight. I was terrified. I was convinced I was making a terrible, terrible mistake in my life. I was on the plane like this going, oh God, what am I doing? What am I doing? I should be in London. I should be trying to get a job in the media. This is a terrible mistake. I'm flying off in the wrong direction, is what I was thinking. And it was very strange. I felt very bad and very paranoid and really not comfortable or happy. And I remember at one point looking out of the window 
to see what was down below me. And we, we must have been flying above Siberia or something. I could just see this frozen wasteland down beneath me. And it just terrified me. For some reason, I thought I was about to drop out of the airplane and just drop down. And I don't know what was going on. So I was, it was horrible. I couldn't watch any movies. I could only listen to the ambient music. That's, the, that's all I could do. And then when we landed and actually got off the plane and started walking, you know, walked through the airport and stuff, I, was, I realized, ah, oh, okay, it's all right. It's kind of, it's not that bad. <laughs> this is going to be okay. This, they, they have normal stuff. They have the usual things here. They've got Starbucks. They've got McDonald's. They have gravity. It's not going to be that bad. I'll be all right. And immediately, my mood changed as soon as I realized it was going to be okay. And uh, it was, I instantly started noticing different different things, weird different things about Japan. Like, for example, got off the plane, walked through the airport, there were lots of guys standing there, completely motionless, with uniforms, very nice uniforms, and white gloves on. And I was like, all right, who are these guys? Maybe these are those robots I've been sort of <laughs> thinking about. But no, they just have guys in uniform, right? In a lot of places. Sometimes you, and, and I, real, I, know, I started to realize that this is a thing in Japan, that clearly they need to raise the level of employment and like give this guy a job. What can he do? Just stand there. <laughs> but you know, it's part of the culture because you start to get a sense of like, this is an important place. It's a good airport. Look, they've got guys with gloves on. And these guys with gloves are quite an important part of Japanese life. They do other important things. They don't just stand there. They also push people onto trains and other useful things. <laughs> so I settled into my life in Japan okay. Um, and I was working for this company, Nova. They didn't pay me very much at the beginning, so it was a little difficult to get by. But I kind of got, you know, got into it okay. But then, yes, I did get horribly sick, and then I thought I was going to die. So what happened? So there's a few things probably that contributed to me ultimately getting really sick and having this horrible experience. And I think probably that they were just cultural differences that I wasn't fully prepared for. And so let's see, some of the things. So one of those things was the, uh, the climate, all right, the climate in Japan. So obviously I'm from England, I'm from the middle of England. Uh, now, the, what most people think about our climate is that it what? What's, what's the climate in England like? The weather in England, it's what? It rains all the time, yes. Not really true, actually. Not, not strictly true. In fact, statistically, Paris gets more millimetres of rain every year than, than London does. Did you know that? You don't believe me, but it's true. Um, it, 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 it doesn't rain all the time, but it can rain at any moment. This is the, <laughs> this is the exciting thing about living in England. Oh, oh uh, you know, what, shall I bring an umbrella? Uh, nah. Ah. That's what happens. But the so um, the weather changes a lot. So it might be sort of cold or whatever. It might be hot in the summer, and then it then it rains a bit, and then it cools down, and then it's a bit hot again. But it doesn't stay permanently hot for any long length of time. Uh, in Eng in England, the winter it's like it's like in France, of course. The the winters are wet and cold and sort of dark. And in Japan, by contrast, they are uh, bright and uh, dry and cold, but dry and. Then in the uh, you're writing notes, okay. <laughs> I must write the weather bit particularly. <laughs> um, important details about Japanese weather. Must write this down. 
never know when this could be useful in the future. Grammar, really? Okay. So, wet, uh, dry and cold in the winter, which is nice, but then in the summer it gets weird. So first of all, in around this time, around May, there's a beautiful, beautiful sunshine. It's like the summer in England. It's just amazing. And I was like, this is wonderful. <sighs> Take off all my clothes and go outside, which is what English people do, by the way, in, when the sun comes out. Because so we don't get that much sunshine. You know, I'd heard about the sun when I was growing up in England. What is this thing that people talk of? So we don't get that much sun. And when the sun does come out, we will go out in the park and lie in the grass and absorb as much of that UV as we possibly can. So that's what I did in, in Japan, and obviously stupidly not realizing that the sun is a lot more powerful than it is back home. And, you know, I didn't think, because I looked at the local people and what local Japanese people do when the sun is out like that, they hide from the sun. They wear their hats. They might even wear, have a little umbrella to protect them from the sun. They're clever, right? Unlike stupid English people like me, who are like, I will strip all my clothes off and just absorb the sun. So one day, when the weather was nice, I uh, went out on my bicycle. And I'd bought this Japanese bicycle, this housewife's bicycle. <laughs> In Japan, they have these certain types of bicycles called mamachari. It's basically a, a housewife's bicycle. So I had this mamachari that I'd bought really cheap. And it was, this, it was a blue bike uh, with a, bar, a big basket on the front for me to put my shopping in. And then an even bigger basket at the back, literally like this big. So I looked completely ridiculous riding around on this housewife's bicycle with these huge baskets. I must have looked so stupid. But the one day when the sun was out, I went out with a vest on, you know? like a vest like this that uh, doesn't cover up your shoulders completely. And I rode around on my bike and I was having a wonderful time. And then that evening I got home and I was like, mm, feeling a little uncomfortable, what's going on? <laughs> Went in the bathroom, took the vest off and I was shocked because it looked like I was wearing a pink t-shirt with a white vest on top, <laughs> right? That's how bad my shoulders were burned, and they were pink, like really dark pink, like bad pink. And it got worse, and sorry about the details, but they started to blister. And, then the, and I was teaching children at school, and uh, sometimes the children would climb on top of me, and so, like that, they'd you know, climb on me, and I was in pain, terrible pain. My shirt would stick to me. So that was bad. I got such bad sunburn that I was scared for my life. That's not the thing I'm talking about. That's not what I was... I'm clearly a very scared person. I don't know, just one thing. Ah! But uh, I got such bad sunburn, I thought, oh, can you die from sunburn? I don't know. You can. I think you can. Uh, so anyway, I was worried about that. Uh, but I wasn't looking after myself. So after this nice weather in May that you get, and maybe June, then you get the rainy season, right? Because of this sort of low pressure comes across, and you get the rainy season. And that's where it's gray and pouring with rain all the time. But then, somewhere around the middle of July, um, the properly hot and humid weather begins. And so you get very hot weather, and it's very humid. In the city, it can be like 40 degrees uh, during the day. And of course, in the city, the stone absorbs all the heat, and then at night, it all comes out. So it's boiling hot and constantly hot, hot at night. Uh, and this goes on all the way through until September, sometimes even October, this kind of heat. And I was not prepared for that at all as the English, uh, you know, the English person. And um, 
So uh, that was exhausting. Um, I'll, maybe I'll come back to that in a moment. But other things, other things, right? My work schedule. So teaching at the school uh, at Nova, the schedule that we had would be that uh, I would teach about maybe nine hours a, a day, uh, five days a week. And um, I didn't know what, my, what I'd be teaching that, that day. So I'd come in uh, to school, check the board, and there would be a list of all my classes for that day and all the names of the students. Now, mostly I was teaching adults. There might have been one or two kids' classes in there too, but it would have been just names of students. And what you do is you normally have about half an hour before the first lesson begins. And so you find the names and numbers of the students in a big like set of boxes with files in them. So I'd find the students, like find their files, um, and like prepare the lesson. But then between each lesson, you have about 10 minutes. You have specifically 10 minutes to finish the lesson and start the next lesson. So that would mean finish the lesson, like, okay, well, that's all we have time for. Bye, pew, and leave. And then back to the teacher's room, put those, um, mark some feedback on the files, give a little assessments and some comments on each file, put those files back in the right place, check the list, find your new files, right? Uh, check the lessons that they haven't done, open up the course book, oh shit, cleft sentences, oh dear, open up the course book and work out what they haven't done, prepare the lesson in about two minutes, get the stuff, go into the classroom and start teaching again. And this ten, these 10 minute uh, periods were, it started with a, with a bell and ended with a bell. In fact, every, everything started with a chime that would be played over all the speakers to say, you've got to be in class now. I know, imagine that French people. Oh, having to be in a certain place at a certain time. And the bell, of course, it was the, it was the chime that you hear on Big Ben. Ding, 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 ding. How many times a day did I hear this? Now, if I'm in London at lunchtime, I'm like, oh, oh shit, where are my lessons? So that was, that was uh, punishing, a punishing teaching schedule. And as a brand new teacher, a lot of the time I didn't really know, I'll be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing. These days, of course, different story. I'm completely in control of my craft. But in those days, I was like, oh, what am I doing? What is the present perfect? Yeah, really. Uh, and um, so a lot of the time I was just struggling to come up with my lessons on the spot, creating them there and then. Um, and that's very stressful and difficult, actually. Uh, Japanese students, lovely, but quiet, okay? Not like French students, where you can just be like, okay, French students, uh, go. And they'll start talking, and you can't stop them, right? <laughs> Japanese students, you can give them specific instructions, and then just... <sighs> lots of silence. And then after the... Uh, then it just goes back to silence, and then you're like, oh, we're just silent then, okay. Um, it can be quite difficult to kind of, you know, get them going, get the English out of them, and it, so it was a real challenge. So I was, it would exhaust me. Every day I'd come home totally exhausted. It was lots of fun, had a great time, but I was so tired every, every time. I was probably drinking a bit too much. There was a barn near where I lived, and I would go down there in the evening and hang out with Japanese, my Japanese friends. And I learned some Japanese. I learned how to count to 180 by playing darts. That was mainly it. I could order drinks and count to 180. Uh, but those were great times. But again, that's not the best way to look after yourself. Plus, 
the salary that we got was very, very low, especially in the first three months, because you're on a probation. And, uh, you know, they want to see if, oh, we'll see if you can actually do this. Uh, and if you can, then they give you a pay rise after three months. But the first three months, I was on a very low salary. And so I had to work out one day, after spending too much money on cocktails, um, I worked out, oh God, so I've got to, uh, this is how much money I can spend on food every day. And I worked out that there was a, a restaurant near where I lived that sold uh, lunch or dinner for about £1.50 uh, a, a shot. And it was, uh, it, the restaurant's called Yoshinoya. You know Yoshinoya? The one Japanese person's like, oh, yeah. Everyone else is like, sorry, who? Uh, Yoshinoya, basically, it's kind of like fa Japanese fast food. So these are bowls where they, they sell gudon, or gyudon, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, which Gyudon. Okay, um, all right. Got that. Oh, no, it's not grammar. <laughs> Vocabulary and spelling in Japanese. Um, so gudon is basically, or gyudon is rice, uh, beef, and onions. That's basically it. Tastes fantastic. Not the most nutritional uh, dinner ever. There's no vegetables, well, onions, but you know. So I lived on gudon for, for a while, which is probably, again, not a very good idea. So boiling hot, working really hard, not eating properly, probably drinking too much, uh, and um, uh, unable to sleep at night because it was so hot. Now, um, there's air conditioning, of course, but um, I. I, yeah, no, I can't handle air conditioning either because it's too cold and dry. And I just felt like I couldn't sleep with air conditioning on because I just felt like I'd be all dry like that when I woke up. Uh, so I couldn't do the air conditioning. So I would lie there and just sweat all night. And I'd wake up with a totally soaking wet pillow. I must have lost like, all my body weight, all the fluid from my body or something. I don't know. But after about nine months of living in Japan, so it was in September, after trying to survive a very hot summer, I started to feel really bad, and I started to feel really tired and really badly tired, and like I was aching. Like my, my, basically, I got COVID, okay? <laughs> this is a long time ago, by the way. This is a long time ago. This is um, 2002, yeah, 2002, ages ago. It's 20 years ago now. 20 years ago, yeah, it's sort of an anniversary for me. Uh, um, so, yeah, I must have got kind of COVID-10 or, some, or something. Like now it's COVID-19, but maybe I had COVID-8 or something. I don't know. One of the early COVIDs. I don't know what it was. Uh, well, I do now, but at the time I didn't know what it was, but I felt really tired and awful. And I, I had no strength and I could only lie down. And even just getting up to go to the toilet in my tiny Japanese apartment, which was basically this. <laughs> That's pretty much it. That was too much for me. I'd just lie down and just, uh, you know, feeling so exhausted. And I thought, I must have got flu or something, you know, you feel like that sometimes. So I, I had to call in sick a couple of days uh, from work. I called in sick and rested. And I couldn't really rest. You know when you're really ill and tired and you can't rest? It was like that. I started to feel a bit better, though, after having a, a basically my weekend plus two days. So that's four days of rest. Now, what I had to do when I went back to work is add those two days onto my five-day week. Uh, so I ended up... Actually, there was... I remember it was eight days somehow. So I had to work an eight-day stretch when I went back to work. 
Anyway, in the middle of it, I started to feel a little bit better, maybe after lying down for three days. I was like, I think I'm feeling better. I think I should go outside. And so I had one day where I was okay, and I went out and visited a local temple and randomly met a rock star at the temple. I was walking out of the temple. It's a place in Kamakura, which has a big bronze Buddha. It's a famous place. And so I went there, took my photos and stuff, walked around, and I was leaving. And as I was leaving, I saw some other Westerners coming in. Now, it's in Japan, it's not that common to see other non-Japanese people. So often you'll sort of like make eye contact. Hello. And I sort of looked at these people as they were, and I was like, hmm, I know him. And then I kept walking. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters and formerly Nirvana. And obviously a ripple of recognition comes across the audience. I'm like, oh, yes, Luke, Dave Grohl of Foo Fighters and formerly Nirvana. Does anyone know who he is? Yes, okay, you're not as excited as I was when I met him. You're like, yes, Luke, we were hoping for a slightly more famous rock star. Maybe a Beatle? But no, it was Dave Grohl. And remember, when I was living at my parents, all sad and depressed, that I could only listen to the Foo Fighters in the car. So I was like, this is Dave Grohl. And at the time, I was like, I'll be cool. I'll just leave him alone. And then I, and then I thought, oh, no, I can't. I can't go back to England and tell my friends that I bumped into Dave Grohl at a Buddhist temple on a hillside in Japan and not, you know, didn't speak to him. So I had to like go back and I, I, I met him, spoke to him. We talked about my camera phone because this in 2002, I had a very early camera phone, like a flip up one with a camera on the back and it took like one megapixel photo or something, I don't know. But I was like, I got my camera, sorry, can I take a photo? And he was like, sure, hey, where'd you get the phone? That's awesome. And I was like, oh, wow, Dave thinks my phone is awesome. Wow, this is amazing. I was like, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, we're doing a show in in Yokohama. And then he said to me, after I'd been chatting to him for a while, oh, you should come. And I'm a complete idiot, because I was like, nah, I've got to work. Thanks, Dave. Because if I'd said, oh, yeah, I don't have a ticket, I'm sure he would have gone like, got a couple of tickets for you here, Luke. There you go. But no, being the stupid idiot that I am, I was like, no, I've got to work. I've got got an eight-day stretch, Dave. So anyway, I met Dave Grohl. We became really great friends. Um, Never spoken spoken to him again. (laughs) But anyway, uh, after that, worked that eight-day stretch. That was tough. And then after that, I was completely exhausted again. But this time it was worse. I started to get like swollen glands. (laughs) This is nice, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? So I had tonsils, which are glands at the back of your throat, okay? Now a lot of us get tonsillitis growing up. Did anyone have tonsillitis here? That's where you get infected tonsils. You're going, I don't even know what that is, Luke. What are you talking about? Don't don't look at me. Uh, You're nodding. It's like, yeah, yeah, tonsillitis. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's it's an infection of the glands at the back of your throat and they go, they go all, all white and they swell up and they're incredibly painful and you can't swallow. It really hurts to swallow and your head feels like it's going to explode. So I got this tonsillitis. Normally they go like grey as you see the infection on them. Mm. Enjoying the, that drink. Uh, <laughs> and uh, mine started to go black. After a number of days, I could see black bits on them. It was just excruciating. I couldn't eat anything except banana and miso soup. 
which is not a great combination, by the way. I don't recommend it. And I was, it was terrible. I was really, really, really ill, and I didn't know what was going on. Now, I did have a girlfriend, a Japanese girlfriend at the time, but she was in England. <laughs> She'd gone to England on holiday with her parents. So I was just basically alone. My, I didn't have a flatmate at the time, so I was on my own in my flat, unable to move, really sick. It was 2002, so I couldn't just, like, WhatsApp my parents. and like, quick, help! So it was, it was really horrible. I just wanted to go home, and I felt really bad. I don't know if you've ever been in a similar situation. But uh, eventually my girlfriend came back. She discovered me like some sort of zombie. Uh, <laughs> come over, yeah. Um, she discovered me and uh, with the help of her mum, arranged to have a doctor's appointment. So this is another chapter, going to the doctor in Japan. And first, the first doctor refused to see me saying something about health insurance, but I definitely had health insurance. I think he just didn't want to have to deal with the, the English zombie. Uh, I don't know. The second guy, after probing into my throat with a long metal, it was a very sort of, it felt horrible. I was in this upright chair with a neck brace. And I was like, why is it necessary to, to do that to me? It seems so cruel. And then there were people walking around behind me. There was a lot of people walking around. Like, why are you walking around so much? And next to me, very, un, very, very disconcerting, there, he had a cabinet right next to my chair, with all his instruments, lots of blades and cutting things. And it was just like, oh God, please, can I just go back to England and work in that pub again? He cleaned my tonsils with a, a big swab. He dipped it in antiseptic and was like, right, I'll sort this out. Mm. He cleaned them directly onto the tonsils. It was just like the most pa uh, painful thing in the world. I don't know, like, does it help? If it hurts more, I don't know. Um, and then he let me go with four small pills of antibiotics, four. Now, I'd had tonsillitis recurring, like I'd had it many times growing up, as you often do, and I'd probably become quite resistant to the antibiotics. I was like, four, that's, that's not gonna do anything. But off I went with my four antibiotics, which did nothing at all, and I was still bad. Finally, I went to see a third doctor, and I went to the doctor and amazingly, by coincidence, he was one of my students from school. He was one of my students. I was like, yes, finally! Someone I, can, I actually know, he was a lovely guy, but he was like elementary level. <laughs> A1, maybe A2 on a good day. So he was nice and he, he uh, gave me a blood test, right, to find out what was going on. And like the next day, he got the results of the blood test and he sat me down and with his broken English, he told me what was wrong, right? So he said to me, first of all, okay, here's your, here's your uh, white blood cell count. Normally it should be about 50, mine was 250. I was like, okay, I'm assuming that's bad. <laughs> I don't know where the limit is, but that's bad. And he said to me, okay, you have, you have liver damage. And I was like, oh, okay, the liver's quite important, I think. You have liver damage. Um, you have the EB virus. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Doesn't sound, what was that, Ebola? What, what, what? <laughs> it didn't exist then, but I invented it in a moment of crazed panic. So you have uh, liver damage. You need to go to hospital. 
and you will need an operation. These are the things he said to me. And I was devastated by that point. After, what, two weeks of, you know, what I'd been through, I was, I was broken, and I broke down, and I thought, oh, God, no. You know, not as, quite as dramatic as that. But I felt really <laughs> appalling because I didn't know what was going on. I was very uh, quite disoriented and probably quite paranoid and afraid. And I thought, oh, God, they're going to give me a liver transplant. That's what I thought. And the thing that scared me, there were two things that scared me about getting a liver transplant in a Japanese hospital. Two things. First thing was like, will, will it work? Can, can, will a Japanese liver, like, work? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these are the sorts of things you're thinking about when you're lying in bed thinking you're going to die. It's like, how, how am I going to die? <laughs> will a Japanese, do they know what they're doing? Of course they knew what they were doing, but uh, will a Japanese? And then the second thing that worried me was that, and I thought, wait a minute, I've been, to, I've been to bars and pubs in Japan, and when Japanese people are drinking, there's always one guy who has maybe one or two beers, his face goes purple, and he falls on the floor and passes out because he doesn't have any enzyme that is needed to break down alcohol. There's like some Japanese, but it's true, isn't it? Yes. Okay, she nodded. That's all we need to verify <laughs> this. Um, that, uh, yeah, that, that, that some Japanese people don't have an enzyme which is required for breaking down alcohol. And so if they drink even a small amount, their face goes all purple, they fall on the floor, and they pass out. And I was there going, God, what if I get that guy's liver? <laughs> no, I'll never be able to have a beer in a pub again. If I do, my face will go purple. I'll fall on the floor and I'll pass out. Uh, so, so I was taken off to hospital, and my first night in hospital, I was lying in the bed. I didn't know why I was there, right? Uh, I knew I felt awful, and I thought, right, in the morning they're going to cut me open, and then it's bye bye beer. <laughs> And uh, I was panicking, you know, I was very, very frightened, uh, as you can imagine. I don't know, can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but I was just trying not to panic. And it was really a question of trying to control my thinking. It was actually a good exercise. All of it was a good experience in the end, because I was okay, ultimately. But all of it was a good experience. I learned a lot of things from it. So one of the things was about trying to control my thinking and not letting myself panic and get too scared. And so I had to play mental games with myself. I played the ABC game. I tried to th think of something easy. Do you know what the ABC game is? It's so easy. You just pick a topic, go through the alphabet, and name of thing, beginning with that letter, right? That kept me going for hours. Where I was lying there, okay, okay, uh, uh, animals, okay, fine. Now, some letters are more easy than others, right? A, easy, like what? Aardvark. Are you like, what's an aardvark, Luke? <laughs> um, anyway, some letters are easier than others. The difficult letters are always like Q and Z as well is, is difficult. Uh, Z, basically, you've only got zoo and zebra. That's pretty much it. So every single thing, every time I did the ABC game, every Z thing had to be related to zoos and zebras. And so, so it's like, okay, uh, smells, right? A, apple, uh, B, a banana smell, uh, C, uh, coconut, uh, and then Z, um, zoo smell? <laughs> zebra, zebra smell, yes. Eventually, I learned what was wrong with me because the doctors did, did tell my Japanese girlfriend's mum 
what the issue was, but it was all lost in translation. I didn't understand what it was. And it wasn't until maybe two days after I'd been in the hospital that I actually found out what it was. Now, on my phone, I did have the ability to email, but it was a very complicated process. It's not like in the old days where you had to like, make a phone call to send an email. You know? It was kind of like that, so I, it was complicated. I couldn't use my phone in the ward. I had to go onto the roof of the hospital to use it. So anyway, my girlfriend's mom told me something. I told my, my parents by email. And eventually, after a couple of days, my parents had worked it out. And I got onto the roof. And I got the email. And they, were like, don't, uh, they said, don't worry, Luke. It's glandular fever. Right? Now, in, that's infectious mononucleosis. I was like, don't worry, Luke, it's mononucleosis. And I was like, yes! It's mononucleosis! Because it's, it's a very common thing. Many of you will have had it too, right? Um, so it's very common. But the symptoms can be bad if, they, if you let them get that bad. So the thing about the liver damage is that that's actually normal because your body is producing white blood cells to try and deal with the, with the virus. That's liver damage. You will need to go to a hospital to rest. You need to go and lie down and be looked after for two weeks because you're in a really bad way because you've let it get to this stage. And you will need an operation was eventually you will need to have your tonsils removed one day. Right? So it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. And that was a huge relief, of course. And then I spent two weeks of the two of the strangest weeks of my life in a Japanese hospital bed. And uh, just very strange things. Now, I, was the, uh, I was not the only non-Japanese person there. There was another guy uh, who was a caretaker, sort of guy who cleaned the floor and stuff. He was from Indonesia. His name was Chandra. And for some reason, the staff at the hospital decided that he was going to be my interpreter. <laughs> now, his English wasn't even that good. He was maybe a B1 level. Uh, but they were like, hmm, well, what about Chandra? He's not Japanese. Okay, <laughs> put them together. <laughs> and so Chandra became my interpreter, and we had weird moments of him trying to explain what the food was. I had certain food choices, and he was like trying to explain to me what the, what the food was. And I was like, uh, what's that? Pretty much everything was ultimately translated as uh, it's soybeans. <laughs> uh, so there's this, uh, what is it, uh, brr, uh, soybeans. Everything is made of soybeans. Like everything in Japan, buildings, cars, uh, no. A lot of food though is. So that, my first morning actually, I remember a nurse came to me and she had a set of questions that had been translated into English to ask me. And one of the questions was, what were your movements last night? What were your movements last night? And I was like, strange question. And I sort of said, well, uh, maybe two hours like this, and maybe like that for three hours or something. And she went, ah, OK, and wrote something down. Later on, I realized that movements meant bowel movements, of course, bowel movements, which obviously means, you know, poo-poo, poo-poo. So basically, she was saying, how was your poo last night? And, and my response was, maybe two hours like this, <laughs> maybe three hours like that. Hmm, okay. Hmm. What did she write? I've no idea. What, they t what were they saying about me? I don't know. But the word spread in the hospital that there was a funny foreign guy in the hospital. Word spread through the hospital. And I started getting visited. 
<laughs> Every nurse in the hospital came to visit me. Ones that I'd never seen before suddenly turned up to see me. They didn't even do anything. Didn't give me any medicine or any healthcare. They just talked, they just were like, several nurses would arrive and, and I would talk to them. And, and then they'd go and I'm like, what's going on? Am I like a minor celebrity here? It, one of them even offered to rub ointment on my back, which was interesting. There, there, <laughs> there was a reason for that because after two weeks, of being in this hospital bed. So what they did basically, what I laid down on the bed all day, they gave me four intravenous drips every day, right? I must have been really ill because they really went full on with the treatment. Four intravenous drips. Two, that's two, isn't it? Two of them were these tubs of uh, see-through pink liquid. I don't know what it is, was. I still don't know what they put in my body, but I got two of these every day, and they took three hours to go in. And after a few days, I could smell it and taste it and feel it on my fingernails. I still don't know what they gave to me. It must have helped, because afterwards, I became a superhero. No, I didn't. <laughs> it's my origin story. But they gave me two, two of them every day, plus two, uh, little packs of um, antibiotics to really fix me, and that really helped. But it wasn't until later that I learned that I'm allergic to penicillin. Yay! So after several weeks of being in the hospital and getting all this intravenous stuff, I don't know, a week or two after, I suddenly woke up in the morning, thought, oh, a bit itchy, what's going on? Covered in a rash from head to toe, a horrible itchy rash. So that's why obviously the girl volunteered to rub the lotion in to my body. I was like, sure, go. okay, go ahead. Yeah, in the end, it turned out to be actually a really nice experience. I lay in bed, uh, my friends came to visit me and they brought me books and CDs and I just lay there listening to music, reading Lord of the Rings and having a wonderful, wonderful time. So in the end, it all worked out okay. And I kind of learned couple of things about living in another country. One of those things is that you should do, what is it, when in Rome, right? Do what the Romans do. When in Tokyo, do what the Japanese people do. So that means slowing down in the summertime. I learned how to live like a Japanese person in the, in the hot summer. And I noticed that Japanese people, uh, where I lived, um, would, be, would do things very slowly. They'd take their time and they would, uh, uh, Japanese food is amazing because it's very balanced. It, like a, a Japanese meal will, will probably involve pretty much all the different food groups. And if there's something with a lot of salt in it, then there's something else that helps you to absorb the salt and all these sorts of things. So a balanced diet, slowing down, relaxing, little tricks, tips, Japanese tricks for keeping cool in the summer. I learned that if you freeze bottles of water in the freezer, you can then sleep with them <laughs> at night or at least put them on your pillow before you go to sleep. And so on. So I didn't die. Uh, I'm still here. And I, basically, I'm very happy, ultimately, that I went through the experience because I have a story to tell at the end of it. And uh, I had a lovely time in Japan, lovely people, lovely, lovely food. Uh, but that is my story. Thank you for listening to it. You can have a drink now. You can already see that chill in the glass out. That's a good thing.
you got perfect eyes, you got perfect eyes, and a really cold glass. Really cold glass. Till then, I'll be somewhere getting better and dancing for Jen. So there you go. That was my story. Okay, listeners, I wonder what you think or what you thought of that. Um, uh, again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, some of you will have heard that story before and you will be quite familiar with it. But um, for those of you who just heard that story for the first time, I'm very curious to know what your reactions and responses are. And so please do tell us if you have had a similar experience. Have you ever lived abroad and what challenges did you face did life seem very different to you in that other country? Where where'd you come from and where did you live? I'm curious to know what the differences were. How did you overcome those difficulties and what did you learn from the experience? Please do leave your comments um, underneath this episode, wherever you're listening, whether it's on YouTube or if it's on my website or wherever. Please just get in touch and give us your thoughts. So there you go. I told you at the beginning that I would talk about what happened after the show. And um, I felt I felt very famous at the end of this on uh, Thursday evening, last Thursday evening, yesterday evening, in fact, it was. I felt very, very famous just for a moment. And this this happens to me in my life sometimes. I'm not properly famous because most of the time I just go around completely anonymously. No one has a clue who I am. People are just bumping into me on the metro and stuff. And it's just like, you know, no one cares. And then every now and then... I'll do something like this, and for about an hour or something, I will feel really famous. And so yesterday evening was certainly an an example of that. So after the performance, we all went to the corner of the room to get some free wine and stuff like that. And so there there was this table with all the wine on it, and then there was me standing to one side. But there was quite a large group of people who queued up not for the wine, but they queued up to take photos with me and to get my autograph and have a quick chat and just to talk to me. So that was amazing, but also quite strange, of course. It's hard to know how to react to that when there's a fairly large group of people queuing up and it's, everyone's a little bit awkward and they're all coming to talk to you. Oh, the great Luke. Oh, and they're all getting a bit excited and taking photos. And I'm trying to smile, trying to look normal, you know, just trying to give a normal good photograph. Um, so that was that was a great experience. Some people said, I mean, it's, it's, it's odd when you realise that you mean a lot to these people. When, when you're meeting people that you've never known, you've never met before, but then you realise that they... For them, they know you really well, or at least they feel like they know you really well. Some people said I was like part of the family or something because they all knew who I was in their house and they would even sometimes listen to me together. So, as I said, I'd never met most of those people before, but but they knew about my washing machine and about my daughter and stuff. It was quite an odd experience, but it was fantastic. And if you were there, if you're listening to this and you were there yesterday, then hello, it was really great to meet you. And it just gives me a tiny idea of what it must be like being Paul McCartney or something, where everyone knows you quite intimately, but you don't know them. There's a certain mode that you have to be in, I think, when you're in public, if you're a person like that. You have to be gracious, and you have to be friendly and curious. I think Paul handles it very well, but it must be an odd feeling for him, knowing that 
everyone knows you, or at least they think they know you, and you are quite a big part of their lives, but to you they are complete strangers. It's an odd one. Um, I mean, it's it's great. It's great. I'm quite comfortable with my um, with the the arrangement I have, which is where for most of the time I'm just a normal person, and then every now and then I become Super Luke, and everyone knows who I am and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, it was a fascinating experience, and uh, you know these events, these moments uh, where things feel different. Uh, it's always a fascinating experience, and it's all part of the rich fabric of life, life's great tapestry. It's nice to be able to taste these different flavours. I feel lucky and I feel blessed, to be honest, to have an audience who listen to my words carefully. And so I just want to say thank you to you for listening. And thank you if you contact me to tell me about yourself. Thank you if you leave comments if you like and subscribe, if you smash that like button on YouTube and subscribe to my podcast and leave favourable reviews on the iTunes store and five-star ratings and things like that, even if you don't like it when I sing, uh, thank you for your responses and stuff. I appreciate it very much. It makes all the difference. If it wasn't for you, I would just be one, like, one individual madman speaking alone into a microphone, that would be sad, wouldn't it? But um, no, I, it's not just me. I've got um, a few football stadiums full of people listening to this, which is awesome. Um, I said at the, the beginning of this outro, not intro, but outro, uh, that I'd like you to leave your comments under this episode. I am always curious to read what you have to say. I don't always respond because I can't, but I do read everything. So again, those questions, have you ever lived abroad? Where did you go? Where are you from? Sound, I start to, I'm starting to sound like the lyrics to that song, Cotton Eye Joe. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Cotton Eye Joe. Remember that? And you're all thinking, no, we don't remember that. It's probably for the best that you don't remember that because it was bloody awful. Um, if I play if I play a bit of that from YouTube, this could easily get blocked. Hold on. Cotton Eye Joe. Cotton Eye Joe was an awful sort of, how do you describe it? Sort of techno pop song by a group called Rednecks. I don't know where they were from. They were probably Dutch. I'm going to I'm going to um go out on a limb here and assume that Redneck, oh Swedish. Okay, they were Swedish. So a Swedish group and they dressed as cowboys and they did this kind of bluegrass techno pop song Cotton Eye Joe. Let's see if I can play just a tiny snippet of this. Hold on. But I'd been forgotten, I Joe. I'd been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? But I'd been forgotten. Remember that? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Here's a bit more. Oh, God. I mean, it's bloody awful. <laughs> it's absolutely awful stuff. But anyway. I don't know why I brought this up. This is weird tangent. I know it's because I was asking you to tell me about a, a, um, a cultural experience that you've had. 
if you went to another country, uh, you know, where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotnajo? Yeah, for some reason, when my brain hears those two questions, where did you come from? Where did you go? Then I have to do the rest. Where did you come from, Cotnajo? Oh, dear. Aren't our brains full of some absolute rubbish, especially mine? There's a lot of... A lot of my brain capacity is is used up with nonsense like that. There's just like Cotton Eye Joe in there and uh, things like Barbie Girl by Aqua and other things, just all sorts of other stuff that really shouldn't be in there. I really should make space for more useful information. It's the sort of thing that comes to me in the middle of the night when I can't sleep you know, it's the sort of thing where I'll just be like, oh, please, can I sleep? And then for, for some reason, I'll just be like, dun, 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 dun. I've been married a long time ago. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Got an idea. Oh, God, please. Anyway, I had to share that with you. But anyway, please do let us know. Uh, where did you come from? Uh, where did you go? Where did you come from? Cotton Eye Joe. Um, what challenges did you face when you went to live in another place? Did life seem different to you? What were the differences? And how did you unver- and how did you overcome those difficulties? And what did you learn from it all? Please leave your comments below. And by the way, premium subscribers, I hope that you noticed that I published a new premium episode last week. It's basically a story, another story, uh, told by two people. So it's it's like the same story told twice from two different perspectives with a grammar review and pronunciation drills all in one episode with a PDF containing some exercises and transcripts. Check it out. It's in the premium archive on my website and also in the app. You'll just need to be logged in to the premium part of my website with your premium login details uh, or to be logged into the app with your premium login details. How do we get premium login details, Luke? Well, you're going to have to be a premium subscriber to get those things in order to unlock all the premium stuff. Um, and uh, to sign up to Luke's English Podcast Premium, and for all the information that you could ever need about LEP Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info, and that is where you will find all of the premium info. You see the way it works? So, like, how do I subscribe? How about this? What, where, why, how, when? Premium info, or just... um, what is it? Premium info slash frequently asked questions um, in the premium section of the menu on my wonderful, lovely, very modern looking website. Okay. All right. Nice one. There are now over 150 premium episodes, both audio and video, with PDFs containing transcripts and language exercises. What are you waiting for? All right. Well, I think it's time for me to stop this now and... I hope that there's going to be a really dr- dramatic and exciting uh, thunderstorm, which I can watch. That would be entertaining. I hope I don't get struck by lightning. I don't think I will be. Don't worry. I'm not planning to be struck by lightning. Not that that makes any difference, right? That doesn't make any difference, does it? If you're outside and there's a thunderstorm and <laughs> lightning comes down and you go, wait a minute, this was not part of my plan. The lightning will be, oh, sorry, I'll move on. I'll strike this tree instead. That's not the way it works, is it? Sorry, lightning. Um, this isn't part of my plan. The lightning's like, well, you're going to have to deal with it because it's happening. Shazam! Kablam! Yeah. Um, anyway, I hope there is a uh, not an earthquake, but a thunderstorm. 
Yeah, no earthquakes, please. No, 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 no. I hope there's a thunderstorm, though, because they're entertaining. Unless you're in a plane and you're trying to land during a thunderstorm. That happened to my wife and I once when we were in Thailand landing uh, in Bangkok. And there was a horrible thunderstorm with loads of lightning and we were right in the middle of it. Another example of a thought, a time I thought I might die. Some of you were thinking, Luke, come on, uh, you know, man up. Stop thinking that you're going to die all the time. It's not all about you in your dramatic life. I know. But it was exciting, though, landing in an aeroplane in the middle of an electrical storm. I've seen planes get struck by lightning. I've seen that happening. Um, I said before, didn't I, that uh, when I lived in London, I had this fantastic view of the city and I could see planes coming in to land on their way to Heathrow Airport. And whenever there were... um, thunderstorms I'd look at the sky and watch the lightning and stuff and I used to see planes coming out of thunderstorms being struck by lightning it's fascinating and apparently it doesn't doesn't hurt anyone thankfully the planes didn't blow up or anything like they if it was a movie that's what would happen right if it was a Gerard Butler movie or something then the planes would all explode the planes are exploding god damn it Thankfully, that didn't happen. Anyway, hopefully we'll have a really entertaining thunderstorm here and then it'll rain and then it'll be cooler because I hate that pre-thunderstorm, humid, hot weather. Can't stand it, listeners. Okay, right. Well, now that I've said all those things I have felt I needed to say, I think it's time to stop the episode. What do you think? Okay, Luke. All right, then. Some One person's going, no, can you keep talking shit for a bit? Um, I don't think so. I think it's probably enough now, isn't it? That's probably enough. Thank you so much for listening, as I said before. And, oh yeah, one thing. I think I said recently that I was sort of trying to soundproof my pod room. And you know those um, sound absorbent panels that I ordered? They all arrived and I've stuck them all on the walls and things. And I think that they are making a difference, honestly. I think that it is slightly less echoey in this room. And as a result, I've got a slightly warmer and maybe slightly cleaner sound coming from my microphone. For the casual listener, it's probably just exactly the same as normal. But for me, it feels different, even though you can still hear my guitar vibrating in the background, right? Because of the, the sustain on the guitar. Go out and have a bite and you'll still be hearing that one, said Nigel Tufnell. Anyway, I am, I am rambling now, so I think it's probably best if I stop. I will speak to you again on the podcast soon. I hope you have a lovely thing. Okay? And you're, you're thinking, okay, look, I will have a lovely thing. Good. I'm glad that you're going to have a lovely thing. If you're going to have a thing, make sure it's a lovely thing. General rule for life there. I'll speak to you soon. But for now, it's time to say... Good bye 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.